Good afternoon, everyone. It is on behalf of the Association of Former Staff Members of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Cultural, and Scientific Organization, that I host this interview with Professor Aaron Benavat on the subject of the engagement of the United States government, and beyond that, the engagement of the research, academic, and practitioner community of the USA with UNESCO. The motivating factor for this interview was a recent declaration by the Comparative and International Education Society, CIES, concerning the imperious need for the US to re-engage with UNESCO under the incoming presidency of Joe Biden, President of the United States of America. I am Alexandra Draxler, former UNESCO staff member who spent many years in UNESCO's education sector. It is my pleasure and privilege to introduce you, Aaron Benavat, professor in the Department of Educational Policy and Leadership at the School of Education of the University of Albany, part of the State University of New York. Aaron has spent almost eight years at UNESCO, first as senior analyst at UNESCO's Education for All Global Monitoring Report from 2005 to 2009, then as director of the newly named Global Education Monitoring Report from 2013 to 2017. He has a long and active relationship with the Comparative and International Education Society since 1987, and was among those who proposed a recent declaration by its board that we'll talk about later, affirming its support for the re-engagement of the US with UNESCO. So just a bit of background quickly, the United States is a founding member and the largest donor to the United Nations and its agencies. It has often been its most vocal critic and has used suspension or withdrawal of funding to give weight to its criticisms over the years. Concerning UNESCO specifically, funding was suspended in 1974 over issues relating to the Israeli-Palestinian tensions. Then in 1984, the United States government formally withdrew, citing bad management and UNESCO programs related to information communications, returning only in 2002. In 2011, it suspended funding following the acceptance by the UNESCO General Conference of Palestine as a member and formally withdrew in 2017. In the field of education, the United States government internationally has been an advocate and support to worldwide fundamental education, then to universal compulsory education. It also supported UNESCO's early entry into gathering comparable data about education and education systems all over the world, as well as the organization of regional and international conferences, publications, agreements, and conventions. Individual members of the research, academic, and practitioner community in the USA, as well as a host of universities in the USA, have consistently been active supporters of UNESCO. There are a number of UNESCO chairs in the United States universities. So now, Dr. Benavat, first, you were involved from, for some eight years in a flagship multi-institutional and international initiative housed at UNESCO the Global Education Monitoring Report that I mentioned earlier. Could you begin by saying a few words, please, about the Global Monitoring Report and its role in helping forge the knowledge base and the political capital for an international agenda for educational development? 
Sure. Uh, first of all, I appreciate very much this opportunity to, uh, to uh, speak with you. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, the, what was uh, originally called the EFA Global Monitoring Report, and now is known as the GEM Report, or Global Education Monitoring Report, was established in 2002. Uh, the first series, there were 12 such reports. They came out each year. And since the new uh, adoption of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the new mandate that the report received to monitor progress on the global goal on education, what's known as SDG4, uh, the team has published um, four reports. Uh, so um, this is a, an unusual international report. It is a UNESCO flagship publication, but it is an editorially independent publication, which is, uh, in that sense, it's uh, quite uh, different from many of the other publications, uh, both that UNESCO put out and many other international agencies uh, put out. Since the content is under the, uh, uh, the review and the decision of the director of the report team. And it really goes through no political filters uh, at any point in the process of developing the report. And when the report is concluded, uh, copies are given to uh, the UNESCO DG, the director general and other uh, colleagues uh, in the institution. Uh, so in that sense, although I would say that initially there was a bit of an ambiv ambivalent relationship between uh, UNESCO and in particular the education sector and the report team since the funding almost entirely came from external funders, uh, mainly uh, some of the major bilateral funding agencies, but UNESCO provided office space, uh, uh, contractual help and, and many other, and some other uh, material. Uh, but by and large, uh, most of the funding, uh, about 95% has come from uh, external funding, which is one of the reasons that, that it remains independent because the funders have seen this as being a very basic uh, principle. Um, it has uh, initially monitored progress on uh, the six EFA goals uh, in uh, the Education for All goals. And each of the reports tended to have two sections. One was a monitoring section looking at progress that countries were making on each of the EFA goals. And then often there was a thematic section that focused either on a particular goal or a particular topic in relationship uh, to uh, the goals or more generally. Um, it is a report that is very much evidence-based. It draws on a wide range of evidence. Most of it is not generated by the team itself. It's a relatively small team. Uh, when I left the directorship, we had maybe 20 or 25 uh, colleagues, uh, including uh, interns and whatnot. Uh, but much of the work is contributed by uh, colleagues, uh, experts from around the world. Um, there have been literally hundreds of background papers that have been commissioned, which are then part of the input uh, into the report and help to ensure the quality and the comprehensive uh, uh, reach of the report. Uh, in addition to the main report, the, the, the team publishes a executive summary, a gender report, a youth report, and beginning last year, a special regional report. Uh, the first one uh, looked at uh, Latin America. Um, and so it has tried to, it has a, uh, uh, editorial board, uh, which is made up of uh, 
colleagues from different international agencies, from UNESCO and from civil society and academia. It meets once a year. And one of the main tasks and mandates of this executive board is to uh, decide on the theme of the uh, future reports. This is not something that the team decides, but rather uh, is a consensus decision by the executive board. And once uh, the theme has been decided, then uh, the director and the team kind of get their marching orders and begin to uh, develop, uh, you know, think pieces and, and zero drafts and, and so forth. Um, the report is launched in many countries around the world uh, in many different languages, uh, both the main report and also the summer reports. It often uh, has a lot of attention by the media in these countries, by uh, ministerial officials, um, by academics, by the civil society. So uh, it is partly because of its uh, success and its impact that UNESCO has in fact embraced it as its flagship publication in the area of education. Thank you so much, Aaron. So moving on from that, um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Comparative and International Education Society and then describe how the board came to make a declaration concerning re-engagement with UNESCO? Sure, my pleasure. Um, the US-based Comparative and International Education Society uh, is one of about 45, 47 um, comparative education societies that exist around the world. Um, they are all members of something called the World Council of Comparative Education Societies. Um, and uh, it is important to note that the WCCS is in fact, uh, has a special NGO status with UNESCO. Uh, CIS itself does not, but through its membership in the WCCS, uh -huh. it is a, 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 an accredited NGO uh, from UNESCO, which is important to keep in mind later on. Uh, so it is invited to some of the big international meetings that UNESCO convenes and so on and so forth. Uh, but CIS is the oldest and indeed the largest of the comparative uh, in international education societies in the world. Um, it was founded in uh, 1956. It currently has uh, more than 3,000 members uh, that represent uh, many different kinds of uh, institutions, universities, colleges, research institutes, um, you know, government departments, uh, NGOs, and so on. Um, in many ways, it's grown fairly dramatically. Uh, I remember as a graduate student attending uh, the CIS meetings that were maybe four or 500 people. Usually it, it, it took place in a, at a university. Um, you know, it was a very, uh, there were lots of kind of big debates, uh, many of them very ideological and, and theoretical. Uh, it's, it, I would say that the association has experienced a, a certain uh, professionalization. Uh, I would say there are two things that have happened. One, um, there are many new uh, professionally or practice-oriented groups that are very keen now to participate in the annual meeting at CIS. Uh, uh, many of these are engaged. Many of these organizations or uh, NGOs are involved themselves in various kinds of studies and and evidence-based research or policy-oriented research, and so. They often come to report uh, the findings from the work that they're doing and, and to uh, you know, discuss with colleagues, uh, hear about uh, you know, up-to-date work that uh, various uh, academics and researchers have been engaged in. 
And the other part of it that I think uh, accounts for its uh, incredible um, expansion over the last couple of decades is that um, as US uh, colleges and universities have grown their international education programs uh, and brought in a lot more international students, many of them studied in schools of education and studied the field of comparative education were very interested in this. And when they returned to their countries, um, they often, or even sometimes when they were still in the US as part of their graduate or PhD training, uh, they might have attended one of the CIS meetings, found it to be a, a fairly friendly and likable uh, environment to engage with right. other students and, and whatnot. And so upon their return, they have continued to be uh, members. I believe something in the order of about 35% of the membership of CIS is based outside of uh, North America. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very international um, uh, organization now. Uh, that represents not just US-based academics, but uh, uh, researchers and practitioners and policy analysts uh, around the world. Um, it uh, basically is involved in every kind of educational research uh, or policy-oriented research you could imagine, cross-national, uh, qualitative case studies, uh, everything from uh, you know, early childhood to uh, university, lifelong learning, non-formal, um, really the whole gamut of uh, concerns of, uh, of researchers and policy analysts are often found uh, uh, in the organization. Um, to your point about uh, the statement, so as you noted in the opening, um, you know, this relationship between the U.S. and, U and UNESCO has gone through uh, many different uh, phases. Uh, let's say it's been contentious to say the least, uh, which often has involved the U.S. Uh, leaving or defunding and then coming back and, and whatnot. Um, and CIS, because its members have been involved with UNESCO, either organizationally, you know, through the WCCS, or I would say uh, much more dramatically as individual uh, members, let's say as UNESCO chairs, but often just uh, often in, in many other uh, in many other kinds of contributions uh, in terms of uh, commissioned work and uh, background, excuse me just a minute. I should have turned this off before. <laughs> um, you know, many of the uh, uh, many of the um, members of CIS, uh, have some of them have worked at UNESCO? Uh, you know, they've taken a leave of absence, such as I did, uh, from uh, academic positions, or uh, they've been involved. For example, uh, Karen Mundy, who's a past president of CIS, is now on uh, UNESCO's uh, Futures of Education Commission. Right. Uh, Sobi, who's also an ex-president, is involved in the same initiative. Right. So there are many different members, um, you know, that have been involved in. UNESCO activities. And so uh, they're keenly aware of the contested polit politics between the US government and uh, the UN generally and UNESCO in particular. And they have over the course of uh, uh, several, uh, over the course of the last decade, articulated the board of directors of CIS has, our, has uh, put out statements uh, in support of uh, the US government's 
continued funding and engagement with UNESCO. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, uh, as I understand it from uh, the current uh, president, Iveta Silova, uh, several uh, CIS members uh, with, the, uh, at the, uh, with the results of the last election uh, saw an opening and a possibility uh, and uh, asked that the organization take a proactive uh, role in making a clear statement that would maybe that would be convened to the incoming Biden-Harris administration. Um, uh, the, the CIS president then asked, uh, they have a committee, uh, it's called the Ad Hoc Committee for Social and Policy Engagement that reviewed the statement. Uh, then it was also discussed by the board. And then eventually, uh, several weeks ago, uh, the statement uh, came out that calls on uh, the Biden administration to rejoin UNESCO and to re-engage in all areas of the organization's expertise, uh, both with respect to culture, education, science, uh, information, and uh, communication. Uh, so uh, CIS uh, sees itself as perhaps because of its own mission, because of the work of its members, uh, sees enormous uh, alignment with many of the uh, goals and particular activities of the organization. So they are very keen for the U.S. to return uh, as a full dues-paying member uh, of the organization. And I think that was the overall motivation to ensure that there are voices uh, being, uh, uh, that are voices that very much committed, uh, U.S.-based voices that are very much committed to uh, having the U.S. return to UNESCO. Thank you for that, Aaron. And I might add that, you know, many of CIES members, in my experience, are also very engaged in the educational development worldwide. They act as consultants and researchers and on development projects. And so it's a, it's a key partner for the educational development community all over the world. There are other initiatives. There's one that I shared with you about a large number of NGOs and quasi-governmental organizations of the US concerning UNESCO's future and supporting, uh, supporting the return of UNESCO or the re-engagement of UNESCO uh, of, the, of United States communities with, with UNESCO. Um, do you have anything to say about the overall mobilization of the education community to support UNESCO, or do you think we've said enough on that topic? Well, I mean, I, I know that uh, the, the World Council of Comparative Education Societies, which is now based in, in the U.S., uh, also came out with a statement of support. I know that the, the main educational uh, research association, the, uh, the AERA, has also been discussing uh, potentially coming out uh, with uh, a statement. Mm -hmm. In the past, uh, there have been other associations, academic associations that have voiced their support, the National Librarians Association and some other professional organizations that have uh, sought to influence US policy uh, with respect to right. uh, UNESCO. I think that now, uh, from what I understand, I would say that there are two kinds of initiatives um, one is, let's say, more organized around the education community, mm -hmm. and uh, the main issue, the main uh, 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 in initiative, I think, is the one that you were referring to, uh, which is through the Global Campaign uh, for Education, uh, which is a kind of an umbrella 
movement that includes uh, many NGOs, uh, both local, national, and, and otherwise. And, and they put out, uh, as I'm sure you've seen, a kind of a six-point um, right. policy paper. Uh, the second point uh, makes reference to, uh, you know, th this is a policy paper that is meant to uh, come to the, uh, uh, the, the committees that are preparing for the new administration. Uh, and right. the, the, basically the second point talks about the U.S. restoring its leadership in global education by supporting multilateral organizations with the experience and uh, technical capacity to respond to current and ongoing needs. And the first specific point that they talk about is the rejoining um, of UNESCO as a full member and its continued uh, support of the UN. So uh, they've clearly articulated this. I know that they have had uh, the executive director with whom I've been in touch with, uh, Jennifer Rigg, has been involved in uh, some uh, exchanges with uh, the teams that are working for the Biden uh, incoming Biden right. administration. I think, I believe also the UN Foundation uh, is also Interesting. Uh, involved in some initiative, mm -hmm. uh, although their focus is much more on multilateralism and right. US engagement in the UN more generally and not uh, UNESCO in, uh, specifically. So, you know, they're pushing for the US to return to the WHO right. and, uh, and such things. Um, uh, but I would say that the, uh, the GCE, uh, the US uh, branch of the GC has been at the forefront of trying to organize, uh, partly right. because the location, you know, they're located in Washington. They have very strong networks that they've developed right. over the years, trying to impact uh, poli uh, right. American policy, uh, both in terms of, you know, international aid, um, and in particular with respect to refugees and, and emergency aid, uh, right. of, uh, uh, for education and emergencies and so on and so forth. So they have a, a strong track record of really knowing you know, who to uh, contact and how to, you know, try to get agenda items um, uh, to the, uh, to, you know, to be noticed by uh, some right. of the, the decision makers. Yeah, and it's also, it's also, um, we can remark on the fact that the Global Campaign for Education statement is some of the signatories are major con contractors for USAID. And indeed, some of them are actually funded by USAID. So, so that means that there's some support within agencies of the United States government as well for re-engaging with UNESCO, which could be very encouraging. Um, sort of one of the last questions I have is, this is a topic that you've done a lot of thinking about, about multilateral, multilateralism being under threat from a number of quarters. And, we see that in many ways in, uh, in the UN system and in general, uh, particularly with the past administration, but not only. Uh, do you feel that agreement and collaboration around international research and policies concerning education can be a unifying force because it's perhaps less political than other kinds of multilateral cooperation? Is that a question you'd like to Make a few I mean, remarks about. I can I can briefly make a couple uh, a couple comments. I, I don't think of myself as a, a particular expert in this area, but um, I, I think that you and I would agree that in some ways um, the U.S. is fairly exceptional in how little support, let's say, broad uh, public support there is for a kind of multilateral engagement. 
um, you know, if you live and work in, in the European continent, uh, and certainly in many other parts of the world, and you know, I've spent a lot of time in East Asia, in Latin America, in the Middle East, there's a lot of engagement, whether it be at the regional level or at the international level with uh, countries working, uh, you know, in consort to achieve kind of broader uh, purposes and broader goals. And, uh, you know, the U.S. for, obviously for certain historical reasons, but also because of its size and its powerful uh, position in the, the global economy and so on, has tended to be a bit of a, you know, kind of a loner, or at least uh, uh, most of the general population has not seen multilateral engagement as being a high priority. Only maybe during times of war and international conflict where the U.S., uh, needs to maybe take a leader a leadership role, but certainly uh, can't do it mm -hmm. by itself. Um, so your question, I mean, there have been certain areas, uh, certainly under the under the purview of U of UNESCO, such as the World Heritage sites, that I think a lot of right. American tourists are are certainly keen on. Um, UNICEF has been much more engaged with the American population because of, you know, its ability to be a fundraiser and all the very creative ways that they have done fundraising uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to support early childhood and, and children around the world. UNESCO doesn't have that option. And so, uh, you know, uh, most people think of the UN as being a bloated, you know, kind of a big bureaucratic association, but there's a lot of talk and not a lot of, uh, of real action or important work that gets done. Um, obviously these perceptions, uh, you know, are, very much, um, how should we say, uh, mediated by the media, uh, you know, uh, and and so the, I, th I think that the the, the deeper problem um, has been the the ways in which political leaders or political elites or those that are let's say more cognizant of the potential value and benefits of multilateralism have gone soft. Mm -hmm or have reneged on their commitment uh, or see it as much more problematic. Uh -huh. And so that to me, uh, in other words, trying to impact the, the general populace is probably not gonna go too far, uh -huh. but I think trying to uh, ensure that uh, the political leadership and policy analysts and people uh -huh. who uh, are uh, more cognizant of a kind of a cosmopolitan uh, perspective about uh, world affairs, it is important to bring, uh, you know, to engage them uh -huh. about what specific activities UN agencies, including UNESCO, are involved in and how this both benefits, you know, world peace or whatever, right. but also has even direct benefits for uh, the U.S. Uh, and U.S. citizens. So I think UNESCO uh, certainly has, um, a, uh, you know, could do more in order to uh, impress upon, uh, you know, the leadership both in Congress and and in the administration about the many ways in which they are in, involved in activities that are either directly or indirectly of of importance uh, to the U.S. Uh, going forward. Yeah, that's very very interesting from your perspective because you you really have a handle on the topics that get traction in in the academic and research and development community concerning education. So 
what do you think um, what do you think are the key areas are that might attract more interest in the United States and that might uh, might cement uh, a larger percentage of, of let's not talk about the general population but the the, the professional po education population in it, for UNESCO I mean you've you you've spearheaded you know, eight or nine topics at the Global Education Monitoring Report, and you know which ones are the ones that really attract the attention of the research and academic community. Would you like to comment on that? So I would, I would uh, say two things, or, or kind of follow in two different uh, directions. One is that you know, UNESCO played an incredibly important role in the development of the uh, 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the, the formulation of the 10 targets and even the global indicators uh, that have been specified and adopted by uh, you know, 195 countries of the UN. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that the education agenda that currently is kind of the international policy agenda in education is the broadest, most comprehensive, uh, most holistic agenda that has ever been conceived. Um, there are opportunities here for every kind of, uh, let's say, research that one might conceive of in many different directions. And so this was not always the case with, it, you know, with under EFA. There was a right. much narrowly, uh, more narrowly uh, focused agenda. And the agenda was mainly about countries in the global south, whereas the new agenda is a universal agenda. It's much more outcome oriented. It's a very learning centric or learning focused agenda. Um, and so many different skills and uh, you know, uh, research that is uh, uh, taking place by uh, you know, US-based comparative education uh, researchers and policy analysts really have a lot to contribute to uh, understanding you know, both progress that's being made and also some of the obstacles and um, issues or challenges that countries are facing in trying to make progress. Uh -huh. um, and so I think that the, you know, the, the academic community really has an opportunity here. I don't think that they've fully engaged as much as they possibly can, uh, possibly could, partly because of certain biases or interests and in, let's say formal education less on lifelong learning and other kinds of things. But uh, in any case, I see a huge opportunity here. Uh, and so I would hope that, um, you know, international, I mean, comparative educationalists uh, here in the US would uh, work in that direction. Uh, the, other, uh, uh, the other issue is uh, a little bit different and that really, I think is the question about the impact of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, UNESCO very quickly understood that it needed to organize uh, a coalition of, of interested educational stakeholders mm -hmm. to try and, first of all, uh, describe, uh, you know, what has occurred in many mm -hmm. parts of the world in terms of, um, you know, the uh, interruption of, of the provision of education. Uh, and the enormous inequalities uh, that have been exacerbated as a uh -huh. consequence of COVID. And so they, they tried to move fairly quickly um, and brought together different people and they have right. provided uh, a lot of interesting material. 
And, and the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, the COVID has certainly had a, you know, a huge negative impact in terms of, of access and continuity and learning, but it's also opened up a lot of spaces for, you know, uh, let's say innovation and institutional change that in the past would have been almost inconceivable because of all kinds of structural obstacles. Right. But, you know, rethinking examinations and rethinking, you know, the, the traditional forms of pedagogy and trying to reimagine quality education and so on and so forth. And so actually, you know, the possibilities for the American uh, kind of comparative education community or education research committee to take up, uh, you know, to, to think about the future and some of these kind of innovations that have uh, innovate opportunities for uh, innovative work in the in the field of education, I think is another very interesting uh, opportunity. And uh, you know, the question is again, uh, uh, you know, how much do people kind of uh, uh, you know take up or seize the day, as it were, uh, and uh, find ways to maybe adjust some of their current interest in order to. Uh, use their own, uh, you know, knowledge and expertise and, and whatnot and, and try to engage with some of these uh, emergent challenges and also emergent opportunities. So one is this kind of the international education policy, uh, mm -hmm. which has a longer, let's say, a horizon of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, but also the immediate impact of uh, the pandemic. and and uh, uh, how it's uh, impacted the education systems around the world, including from the US, uh, in the US. And, you know, I've had students, for example, in a course that I taught in comparative education this last semester, you know, that I, I, I said to them, there's a lot to be learned uh, from, let's say, you know, the education and emergency literature that could be in, in some sense adapted or uh, embraced or, or reconsidered in light of some of the challenges that local school districts, let's say here in the state of New York, are facing uh, in relationship to uh, remote learning and, and trying to provide quality education for their uh, for their children. So, I think that there's a, you know a lot of and many of these are principals or or, or people in positions of some leadership right. uh, uh, in the local school districts. They begin to see other ways in which the the field of comparative education can actually speak or provide uh, another uh, window or another uh, kind of a platform for them to, to see other uh, potential policies or uh, activities or interventions that potentially could be uh, valuable, you know, given what we've uh, experienced these last few months. So I think both of these things are really important. That's really interesting. Thank you so much. And it's true that as uh, the role of COVID in driving accelerated inequalities comes to the forefront that uh, there is a relationship between UNESCO and much poorer countries and learning from each other about how, how to overcome these inequalities. I think you're absolutely right. Um, well, to our concluding sort of remarks, uh, do you have any comments about other actions that might be taken to encourage the U.S. to come back to UNESCO? And uh, have we missed anything? And would you like to just wrap up with a few just yeah. final remarks? <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that there are um, there are those who might uh, 
might say that this is uh, trying to get the U.S. to come back to UNESCO is a very complex and complicated uh, uh, process. It's very different from, let's say, the disengagement with the WHO, uh, you know, which the new administration can kind of overturn a decision made by the previous administration you know, fairly quickly. I think, you know, those who are in the know feel that there's a, a longer history, uh, much of it contested and, and all kinds of other kinds of obstacles uh, that would need to be um, engaged. But I think that um, it's important to keep in mind there are really two different kinds of statuses or two, two, uh, two ways that the U.S. can come back. Any member state of the UN, the executive branch of that country can request to become a member of UNESCO, regardless of the dues. In other words, you know, for many years after, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the Palestinian thing, the US stopped funding UNESCO, but it remained a member of UNESCO for at least uh, five or six years. And it, it was engaged in various UNESCO activities. It was involved in the executive board. It, uh, you know, it, it was involved in all kinds of uh, discussions that went on at the institution. So even though they weren't paying dues, they were still a member of the organization. And so I think that um, it, it may be a lot simpler, you know, to, for us to basically say to the new administration, let's go back to the kind of the status quo ante. Let's go back to uh, a situation, at least initially, where the U.S. comes back and, mm -hmm. and before it, we, we work out this whole question about the dues paying uh, right. and also paying, you know, the amount in arrears, but also the existing, that can be negotiated probably quietly, you know, among uh, uh, the cabinet of the DG at UNESCO and, mm -hmm. and the representatives of the U.S. administration. It doesn't have to happen overnight. But the U.S. can come back fairly, you know, easily. Uh, it isn't such a big deal, uh, and I think that the, obviously UNESCO would very much uh, embrace that. And and the situation has changed. You know, there's a there's a uh, you know the new DG has been uh, very politically astute, and all the kinds of you know political contest, contested uh, issues that uh, let's say were more more characteristic of of the UNESCO executive board in the past. Um, you know, they've gotten their kind of financial uh, uh, house in order. Um, you know, they have a lot to be proud of in terms of kind of uh, getting uh, things, even, even though their budget has been reduced uh, uh, dramatically, but they have a much better organized uh, house today, uh, you know, politically, financially, and otherwise. And so um, there's really very little reason, you know, for the U.S. not to re-engage, even at the basic level of becoming a non-dues paying member uh, and then to work out, you know, the other kinds of issues, both on, you know, this side of the Atlantic and potentially, uh, you know, in Paris on the other side of the Atlantic. So I would hope that, um, you know, uh, should we say, uh, intelligent minds or uh, uh, people who of good, uh, good faith will understand that there's much to be gained and little to be lost by having the U.S. Uh, re-engage with UNESCO. I think it would be enormously beneficial, uh, certainly uh, uh, for the organization, but also for uh, the international uh, comparative education uh, community. And, uh, you know, so I fully support every effort uh, that's being undertaken right now to uh, have the U.S. return. 
So Aaron, Professor Benavat, on behalf of the Association of Former UNESCO Staff Members, of which I'm an active member and we're a large community dedicated to, to UNESCO and, and to other things related to education and culture and science, thank you very, very much for your time and thank you for being here for us. My pleasure. Thank you Goodbye. very much. Bye.